The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Well, we're going to get started this evening right into our, in our message. We don't have a special tonight, so we'll just get going here. 1 Timothy chapter 2, and that's, this is the third message that we've taken from this passage where Paul is instructing Timothy on the subject of prayer. And this is a very important text for many reasons, and all that we're actually doing is just drawing one, one aspect out of this uh, deep well of doctrine that uh, Paul gives us here in this second chapter. So if you look here in in chapter 2, verse number 1, he says, I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come under the knowledge of God. Of the truth. Our subject again this evening is living for Jesus and particularly living in communication. And communication, of course, we're talking about prayer. That's the Christian way of making our desires known to God. It's also a way that we learn from God and um, how that we can have uh, an intimate fellowship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, in the last two messages, I've, I've stressed the point that the disciples wanted Jesus to teach them how to pray. They desired to have power with God. Uh, They heard him and they wanted to have the same intimacy with God, the same fellowship with God that Jesus had. And they knew that what they'd been taught about prayer was just hopelessly inadequate when they compared themselves to him. And I think that's really one of the first things that you find out when you come to know Christ as Savior, that you start to compare your life to him And you find out just how hopelessly inadequate that you are. That he is superior in every area. And no matter what we talk about here, you're going to have difficulty matching Christ. And especially when you come to the the, uh, idea and thoughts about prayer. And uh, just to think about who Christ is and what he is really kind of makes us ashamed of ourselves. And so we realize that when we decide that we're going to follow Christ, that we know that we need help. There, there isn't any area of discipleship that we're not going to need his help. But there are people that when you talk to them about things like prayer and, and you say, well, you're not a Christian and so you're not able to come to God in prayer. You say things like that and you are, you're, you're just an object of ridicule, an object of scorn. They say, who in the world do you think you are? You are so arrogant to think that our prayers aren't as good as your prayers. Well, the disciples heard Jesus pray, and they knew that they were just ignorant about prayer and they needed help. Now, what we're trying to do in these three messages is to show you the the biblical standards that that Jesus gave for prayer, the Bible gives for prayer, and how that we're to approach God in a way that's pleasing to him. How do we do that? And we've kind of gathered all of these things up underneath this, this heading of practicing the essentials. What do we do? To, to pray God, to God in the right way. Now, I actually have two more parts to this outline. 
I mean, uh, uh, not just about the essentials of prayer. There are two other parts that we're going to get into. But we're kind of stuck in this area right now, talking about the things that God expects from us that are uh, the way that we need to come to Him in prayer. So we've already covered three of those. There's seven of them all together. We've covered three, and we're going to look into it a little bit more tonight. So before we go on, let's just mention those first three that we've talked about. The first one was credulity. Credulity is about our trust in God. It's the belief that God is faithful to do what He's promised, that He will hear us, and we are to pray in faith without doubting. That's credulity. Secondly was humility. And prayer, that's, that's noticing or knowing that prayer is a, a privilege that's been granted by God. That we ask from God, we don't demand from God. And uh, we understand that we're not worthy to come into his presence. It's only by his grace, only by what Christ has done for us in satisfying God for our sins. So humility is about the recognition of our unworthiness uh, before we come to God in prayer. The thirdly is harmony, that our prayers have to harmonize with God's will. Now the best way that we harmonize is to research God's word because just about everything or everything that you need to know, what God wants you to know about the Christian life is found in his word. If not directly, it's found there by principle. And so if you're a person that studies the word of God, then you're not going to have a great deal of difficulty finding out what God's will for you is. Well, now we need to move on and we'll get into the fourth area that I want to talk to you about tonight. And this next one is that we are to approach God righteously. Righteousness is an essential for prayer. Now, righteousness is something that we could have put right at the head of this list because a person that, that comes to Christ has to have entered into a relationship with him. To know Christ is to possess his righteousness. And that's really the whole purpose of the incarnation. That's why you have the cross. That's why you have the resurrection. It's an order that we can have a relationship with God. Christ came to make men righteous, to get to have their sins, uh, make their sins atoned for, that God is propitiated, that justice has been satisfied by that sacrifice of Christ. And so redemption by the blood of Christ is the way that we've been brought into a position of justification and that righteous standing that we have with God. Now in the oldest book of the Bible, this, this was a question in the very oldest book. That's in the book of Job, where Job asked this question. He said, I know it is so of a truth, but how should man be just with God? I know it is so of a truth. Well, that, that's a response to Bildad's speech about sin and, and justice. And so Job asked, how should a man be just with God? And he asked that because he was very perplexed about the situation that he was in. Here he's in the midst of a, of a great tragedy. And so he wondered, what is the way that you fix this? How do you make things right with God? What do I need to do to reverse this in order to be right with God? And so that issue of righteousness was right up front as a part of that conversation. Anytime that we talk about a relationship with God, we have to speak of righteousness. That's the elephant in the room that you can't ignore. Are you righteous? Now righteousness then has to be addressed when we speak about prayer because only the righteous can speak with God. Peter wrote, For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Holiness, righteousness, 
Those things are the very same issue, and according to these verses, they are essential to prayer. Obedience is essential. And so when we talk about obedience and holiness and righteousness, these are almost exactly the same terms when we're talking about this particular issue. They're so closely knit that they're inseparable. Now, even when we, when we say that our privilege of prayer is based on Christ's righteousness, the active obedience of Christ actually comes into that question. He earned righteousness by his obedience. Now, I've explained that to you many times before, and I hope that you remember we talk about two things. We talk about the intrinsic righteousness of Christ. That's what he has by right of deity or by the fact that he's deity. But there's also an earned righteousness, and that's the righteousness that he gives to us. That's what he earned or what he got by received by a perfect life. This is what Hebrews 5, 7 through 9 says, Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered and being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation and all them that obey him. Now, you probably have a question about that, verse 9, and being made perfect. I mean, wasn't he already perfect? How could he be made perfect? Well, that's where God is talking about that, that earned righteousness of Christ by, his, by, his perfect, by be, uh, living a perfect life. He, he was made perfect by his obedience. Now, it's interesting that the scriptures show us that the prayers of Christ are tied to obedience. And it says he's the author of eternal salvation to those that obey him. So, the father would have never paid any attention to Jesus at all if he was a rebellious son. And because he wasn't, Jesus could pray to his father and say, Father, I know that you hear me always. So we have this great precedent that's that set in Christ that righteousness is an absolute essential for prayer. When we talk about righteousness, there are actually two spheres when it relates to prayer. The first one is the sphere of the reprobate. The reprobate are those who are estranged from God. They don't have a relationship with him. And that condition is expressed by Paul in Ephesians 2.12 where he says that at that time ye were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. Now that's what Paul said to Gentiles but the Jews didn't fare any better. This is what he says in Romans 10.3. For they, speaking of Jews, they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. The results for both Jew and Gentile are recorded in Genesis 3.22, where it says, But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. Now, the righteousness of God in Romans 10.3 is Jesus Christ. And so the conclusion is that no one who doesn't believe in Christ has righteousness. They're without righteousness. They're separated from, from God, and so they have no hope to approach him. Now, in the next verse, verse number 5, right after our text verses, uh, you know that it says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Now, in our text... Paul's teaching here is for us to pray that all people would be saved. And he means to be reconciled to God 
by the mediation of Jesus Christ. That's the only way they're going to be able to contact God. Several years ago when uh, Bailey Smith was the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, he ignited a firestorm of protest when he made this statement. He said, God Almighty does not hear the prayer of the Jews. Now, if I made that the title of my sermon and we put it out on the sign outside, you can imagine what the, what the neighborhood was going to say. But that is a true statement. I don't remember the context exactly that he said that, but I, I, I'm quite sure that it had to do with the Jews' rejection of Christ. Now, a Christian Jew, of course, that person could pray, but if one rejects Christ, we have a, a Jew that rejects Christ, he is unwelcome to come because Paul says he is not submitted to the righteousness of God. And again, that righteousness of God is Jesus Christ. So in the broader context of it all, God doesn't hear the prayers of anyone that's an unbeliever. Now, what's the problem? And why are these biblical statements? Well, the issue is righteousness. What people have not done is to deal with the sinfulness in their lives, and that's what excludes them from the throne of grace. And so when we talk about the sphere of the lost, we're speaking of righteousness and holiness of a person in his relationship to justification. Now remember that. We're talking about justification in this issue. That the person lacks the essential righteousness of Christ that's been imputed to him by faith. And without Christ, there is no access to God, whether you're a Jew, a Gentile, a Buddhist, a Hindu, doesn't matter what you are, or even a nominal Christian. You have to know Jesus Christ. That's the first fear. So the prayers of the lost, those that are reprobate, are not acceptable to God. Well, we want to back up a little bit because although we're concerned about people who live in that first sphere, we're very concerned about people that are lost, but we're more concerned in this message about the second sphere. And the second sphere is the sphere of the redeemed. And righteousness is also a problem with the sphere of the redeemed. Now, of course, we're talking, when we say redeemed, we're talking about people that are born-again Christians. We're speaking of people that have been made righteous by faith in Christ. They are justified. They've received that imputed righteousness of Christ. And so they're forever preserved in that righteousness. But even though they've been redeemed and they're justified and they've been made holy by the blood of Christ, they still have problems with prayer because of the issue of righteousness. God may stop hearing or at least stop giving because people have a problem with righteousness. Now we're talking here about righteousness on a different level. This isn't what we're calling here outright exclusion of that person because he has no relationship, but we're talking about the abuse of the relationship. Because he doesn't obey God, he abuses that relationship that he has. Now I want you to go to the book of Romans where the Apostle Paul deals with this in chapter 6 and uh, it's a problem of conflict, the conflict of righteousness and sin in the believer. Now, I want to read a few verses here. We're going to kind of skip around. Uh, I'd like to read it all, but for the sake of time and the point of the message, we won't read the entire chapter. But just look at a few verses here of Romans 6. It starts out in verse number 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Then he goes on to discuss how we've died to sin and we've trusted Christ and he uses baptism as a symbolism to show that we've died to our old way of life and we've risen to walk in new life in Christ. 
Then verse 11 he says, Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Verse 18, Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. And then on to verse number 20, For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now being made free from sin and become servants, of, uh, servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. So you see there's servants of righteousness and there's servants of God and fruit of holiness. And the Bible's telling us, Paul's saying here, that is the way that a Christian is supposed to live. Well, we have to ask then, why is Paul dealing with sin in the Christian life? And why is he talking about living righteously and living in holiness if there isn't any consequence to it? Now, we know the consequences of sin in the Christian's life is not that he's going to lose his salvation. He never has to worry about losing his eternal life. We're justified forever once we've trusted Christ. And that's based upon what Christ has done, not what we do. So there has to be another angle here that, that Paul is approaching. Disobedience in salvation must involve some sort of temporal consequence. And we do know it involves an eternal consequence, but it's not the loss of our salvation. There's an eternal consequence, what the Bible teaches is a loss of reward. But there's also a temporal consequence to living an unholy life, and it's the very subject that we're talking about here. And that is you cannot be intimate with God. You cannot, have a, uh, you cannot come to God in prayer and expect answers from Him unless you have this closeness of fellowship and intimacy that you have because you are obedient to Him. You can't expect God to hear you when you're not obedient. Now let's turn back here. Uh, I mentioned 1 Peter chapter 3 uh, a moment ago. So let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 3 and put that into context. There... Paul was not speaking to lost people, actually, when he said that the, the unrighteous uh, don't, God doesn't hear their prayers. God hears the prayers of the righteous. He wasn't actually even writing to lost people at all. He's writing to Christians. And the context there is that Christians must live holy lives so the world's accusations can't stick to them. If they suffer for righteousness, so be it. If they suffer for Christ, they are to take it willingly. Now this is what he says in the whole context of that passage. Starting in verse number 8. He says, finally, 1 Peter 3 verse 8, Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrariwise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. Now you see there Paul is talking about all the righteous works that a Christian does. And then he follows that up by saying, For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And so do you understand the context of this? That you couple that with what Paul says in Romans 6, and here you have the picture of a Christian who can't expect God to hear him if he's still living like he's never been justified from his sins. That's, that's a killer to answered prayer. 
But you have many Christians that just act dumbfounded when they feel like they're out of touch with God. They don't feel his presence. They, they don't think their prayers are getting any higher. They have the sense they're not getting higher than the ceiling. So what's the problem? Well, very often, more often than not, it's a problem of righteousness. They're not holy. Now, that's a truth that's expounded over and over again in Scripture. To get God's ear, obedience is necessary. What does the Bible say? The prayers of a righteous man are effectual. That, isn't that what it says? And so, in effect, it's also saying the prayers of the unrighteous don't count. It doesn't count for anything. Proverbs 28 verse 9 says, He that turneth away his ear from hearing the law, which means hearing and obeying the law, even his prayer shall be an abomination. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither is ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. So, how clear is Isaiah about the problem? God's willing to hear. The problem's not God's lack of ability. God's waiting for his people to call on him. But he's not going to hear if there's a glitch in righteousness. Our sins separate us from God. He'll hide his face. He closes the door to his throne room if his people don't come to him in righteousness. When they're disobedient, God doesn't hear. Now, just to show you that this is a problem for the redeemed, we need to look at an example. Uh, look at a man in Scripture that we're absolutely sure that he was a child of God. In Acts chapter 13, uh, there's a quotation from Paul, which is kind of a gathering up of Old Testament text, and he's relating the history of Israel, and uh, he retells the story. And in Acts 13 verse 21... He says, and afterward, now he's, he's telling the story of the Jews, and afterward they desired a king, and God gave unto them Saul, the son of Sis, a, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, by the space of forty years. And when he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. So their scripture says David was a man after God's heart. Well, we know that David had to be a righteous man. Nobody has the heart of God unless they're righteous. Uh, God is righteousness. But then watch what David says in Psalm 66, 18. He said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. This is a righteous man talking. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And then you can back that up with David's... Uh, Psalm of Confession in chapter 21 where he had sinned grievously and so he poured out his heart to God pleading for the forgiveness of sin. And what does he say there? He says, cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. Cast me not away from thy presence. What do you think he meant by that? He means... There is no fellowship with God when there's sin. Well, Christians don't need to be dumbfounded by this issue when they think they can't or feel they can't contact God. Holiness is essential for intimacy in prayer. So God doesn't hold out the scepter and say, enter my throne room if you displease him with an unholy life. 
Now, what did David do to get back in fellowship? Psalm 51, 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. So I hope that registers to you. In the second sphere, God doesn't hear the prayers of the saved if they insist on living ungodly lives. And why would God hear? This is what John wrote, 1 John 3, 22. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And so if you have difficulty with prayer and you feel like God's nowhere to be found, take a look at your life. Now, strangely enough, I, I, uh, I, I preach this to you. But you already know these things. I mean, this is not a mystery to you. This is not groundbreaking territory that I'm giving you. And you're never going to get to the place that it's this bad that you feel that the Holy Spirit has been taken from you unless God's already taken a hammer of chastisement and beat you over the head with it. So you're going to be very much aware that you're out of fellowship with God when you try to pray to Him. You're going to feel those prayers don't go anywhere. And so is something wrong in your life? Do you feel disgruntled about things and... Are you uneasy about things? Is going to church a chore for you? And do you fight yourself to come to church and hear God's word? That means something's wrong. There's a secret sin. Or maybe a sin that's not so secret. And that's cut off your communication with God. So if you want to experience answered prayer, pay attention to, to righteousness. Obey God. And the Bible says, He will hear. Now, let's lighten the load here just a little bit because some of this stuff is kind of, you know, it's pretty heavy stuff. You, 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 if you aren't living a holy life, then God's going to convict you of that. And if you're not convicted of living an unholy life, then you're not living in sphere two. You're back in sphere one. So let's ease up just a little bit here. And I'm going to assume that you've prayed a prayer of confession. Now you're back into fellowship with God. So once you get over the issue of righteousness... Then what is the next essential to prayer? We have credulity, we have humility, we have harmony, we have to live righteously. And then fifthly, you must pray thankfully. Prayers have to be offered thankfully. Come to God with thanksgiving. Now gratitude, gratitude is a very important aspect of prayer. We like people that show gratitude, don't we? Nobody likes the person that's not thankful. You don't like somebody that you do things for them and they just show no appreciation at all. Well, if we like people that show appreciation, gratitude, you can be sure that God likes that as well. Now, from time to time, I, I, I'm really blessed by people who send me an email. They may send me a text or a thank you card, and they say, Pastor, thank you for teaching us the truth. And I always say to that, give the glory to God. You know, I like to respond um, like that, give the glory to God. But the truth is, you know, I'm trying to hold the ego out of it, but I like to hear those words. I mean, that's just the human nature. I like to hear kind words. So you, you, do, you do that for me? I, I love to hear that. Thankfulness is always good. Now, believe me, I've had some letters that aren't so good. Um, I, I tend to save what people write to me. And so uh, the other day, I was uh, going through my filing cabinet, and I was just kind of reliving some of the past 12 years. And there are some people in the church that have the gift of discouragement. They do. And, and because some of the letters that I get from people are just poisonous things. But thankfully, most of you are very much different from that. Some of you are card people. 
know what I'm talking about? Card people. Linda Christensen is a card person. Um, if you get a card from the church, she's the one that has that ministry. You know, sometimes people come to me and they say, Pastor, I, I really thank you for that card that you sent. And uh, I always bashfully take the credit for it, but I didn't send the card. That, that's Linda who sent the card. She, does, she doesn't take credit for anything, so I'll, I'll, do, it, I'll do it myself. I, somebody's got to get it. Card people. Cindy Lostness is a card person. Shelly is a card person. You know, I, I love to get those cards. I'm not a card person. You're, you're very unlikely to get a card from me. And, uh, but I, so I'll just have to tell you all at once. I, I appreciate being your pastor. Thank you for letting me do this. And uh, thank you for listening to God's Word and all of those kinds of things. If I do anything right, then give God the credit for it. If I do anything wrong, blame the church office and the deacons because that's where that comes from. So, you know, I, I, I love gratitude and, and you love gratitude. And, you know, I, I thank you when you're gracious to me, but I haven't really done that much. I haven't done much. What do you think that God enjoys when he's the one who's done all? Shouldn't he expect our gratitude? I mean, when I've done the very best that I can do, you know what the Bible describes me, how it describes me? An unprofitable servant. And when I've done the very best that I can do, I'm an unprofitable servant. But God's the one who's done all perfectly. And he deserves every bit of gratitude. Paul says here, who deserves more gratitude than God? And so what you can't do is you can't consistently receive from God, take from God all the time without being thankful. Showing some gratitude. Well, who's the best example that we have of prayer? We all know that's Jesus. I mean, the disciples said, Jesus, you teach us to pray. Why? He's the best example there is. And they saw his example. And that's why they asked to be taught. And didn't they hear Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus? There he is standing at Lazarus' tomb. And, uh, and there's in John chapter 11. And he's, he's praying and he says, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And I knew that thou hearest me always. But because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And then what about this? In Matthew 11, he said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and the prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. I thank you. Now, Jesus had every right to expect the Father to do everything that he asked, because he was perfect. The Father delighted in him, so... I would think that the Father would give Jesus anything that he asked, even without his gratitude. But that's not the way that Jesus was. He knew that God the Father deserves gratitude. And that's also commanded. Now, what I think about Jesus, he would have been a card person. Uh, he, he would have been a walking Hallmark store, always passing out cards and praising the Heavenly Father, just thanking him for everything that he did. Well, his prayers in those passages are, are teaching moments for us. He's the perfectly deserving son of God, and yet he gave thanks. So what do you think that God expects from those that are imperfect and undeserving? When he does something for them, they ought to give thanks. We don't deserve anything. What you are in line for as a child of God is the inheritance of God's grace. And so what should you be other than overzealously thankful to him. Now consider that then as you read these kinds of verses, Ephesians 5.20, where it says, giving thanks always 
for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 4, 6, be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 and 18, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. You know, that, that, what I've just said, I hope, makes these verses make perfect sense. It's essential to be thankful, and so a good part of your prayer should be spent in giving thanks. Don't forget to do that. You know, it's kind of interesting to me that after hundreds and hundreds of years have passed, people will still sit down, Christians still sit down at a meal, and they'll say something like, would you like to give thanks? Saying to someone else at the table, would you like to give thanks? Now, I remember my dad used to say it this way, and when I go back to uh, see family in Kentucky, we sit down at the dinner table, and they'll say to me, would you like to return thanks? That's the way we always said it. Prayer and thanksgiving are synonymous terms. Now, how is it that that desire to thank God when we sit down to eat is gone from us now? I mean, what, what most people do now is they sit down like pigs at a slop trough. And they don't care where the food came from. We're hungry. Let's just eat. And so nobody ever thanks God. Jesus wasn't that way. His example is giving thanks. In John 6, 11, Jesus took the loaves when he had given thanks and distributed to the disciples. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, Paul is here telling the story about the Lord's Supper. And he says, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Now you think about what Jesus said there. And what he gave thanks for, this is just a remarkable thing. Because that supper that he had just instituted there, that, that was a picture of his broken body, of his mutilated body, of his humiliation, of his crucifixion. And for that he gave thanks. God said in everything, give thanks. And I think we could see where, where Paul got the idea when he wrote that. When, when he said, give thanks, pray without ceasing and give thanks, he's just following the example that's given by Jesus. Paul, in 1 Thessalonians, the, the verse that I gave you there, uh, he was writing to persecuted Christians. I mentioned this on Wednesday night, that he, he's writing to the Thessalonians who, who thought because things were so bad where they lived, the persecution was so bad, they thought they'd missed the rapture. They were afraid that Christ had come and they'd missed it all. And yet, in spite, despite all of the things that they experienced, Paul wrote to them and said, In everything, give thanks. Why? He said, Because that's the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. That's pretty powerful stuff, isn't it? Everything, give thanks. Now, let me give you another example. We'll close with this one. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 17. And uh, we, we've been kind of going through a journey in Scripture here tonight, and that's what Bible study's for. Uh, look at Luke 17, verse number 12. Luke 17, verse 12. And uh, I think this will be familiar to you. Uh, this is about Jesus. And as he entered into a certain village, there met him ten men that were lepers, which stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said unto them, Go show yourselves unto the priest. And it came to pass that as they went, they were cleansed. 
And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answering said, Were not there ten cleansed? But where are the nine? There are not found that return to give glory to God, save this stranger. And he said unto him, Arise, go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. So there are ten men with leprosy. And I don't have time to just go into all of that uh, about the awful disease of leprosy. You know when we're, we're talking about, when we speak of leprosy, it's a terrible, incurable disease. It's contagious. And, and that meant that lepers could not mix with the rest of the population. And so uh, a leper had to announce his presence. He had to cry out, unclean, unclean. And people would scurry away when they saw that a leper was coming near. Well, here we have ten lepers that are together. And you often see them in groups because nobody else could be with lepers but lepers. So that's their fellowship, lepers. And, and so they come to Jesus with this loathsome disease. Leprosy meant that you are disgraced. It means that you are a pariah. Uh, it's the, the condition of these men is that they're hopeless, they are deserted, they're outcasts, they, they are just degraded, they are ashamed of what it's like for them. Ten men come to Jesus and they want to do anything to get out from under this curse that they're under. So these ten men, they come to Jesus and they ask for mercy. Now at least we have to recognize that they acknowledge that whatever they would receive from Jesus was out of the goodness of his heart. He, nobody else would come near them, but Jesus didn't have a problem with that. And then there's even an element of faith that's involved here because uh, they were healed. And, and Jesus told them to go show themselves to the priests. Actually, that happened before they were healed. So he says, go show yourself to the priests. What's the purpose of that? Well, the priest is the one, the, is going, who has the responsibility of saying, okay, your leprosy's gone. You can go mix with the rest of the people. And there's a process to go through, which I don't have time to explain. But the priest is the one who pronounces them unclean. He looks at them, inspects them, and says, there is no leprosy. Well, before they were actually healed, Jesus said, go show yourself to the priest. So there's an element of faith that's taken place here. They go on their way, and as they go, doing what Jesus said, they were healed. Now what about verse number 15? I mean, this is the point that Jesus is going to make. One of the lepers returned to give glory to God. One came back and thanked Jesus for this impossible healing that he'd received. So he comes back to Jesus, he thanks him. And uh, uh, I don't have time to go into this either right now. I mean, there's a, there's a lot in this. But the Bible says that he was a Samaritan. And there's a reason that Matthew gives us that detail. Only the Samaritan came back to give God the glory and to thank Jesus. Now, the other nine, according to this, must have been Jews. And I'll let you figure out the message in that. And you can just think back on the things that you've learned about Jews and, Gent uh, Jews and uh, yes, Gentiles, Samaritans, and the relationship in the book of Matthew that we've talked about many times. You think about that and decide why that Jesus would mention or that uh, this is mentioned in the scripture. One is a Samaritan, the rest of them are Jews. So one comes back, he's a stranger, he's outside the commonwealth of Israel. What did Jesus say to him? He said, arise and go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. But wasn't he already healed? Well, he was. That's why he returned to give thanks. He's already been healed. So why did Jesus say, thy faith hath made thee whole? Well, it's because this one man received something that the others didn't get. 
Jesus said, whole, your faith has made you whole. And that word means more than just his physical healing. This is actually the Greek word sozo, which is the word that we find in scripture that means saved. He got more than the others got. They got their physical healing. This man got physical healing, but then he had his soul saved. Now what that tells us, and my point here, is that this is what Jesus did for a man who had a heart of gratitude. The rest of them went their way. They never returned. One comes back and he thanked Jesus and Jesus saved him. So one despicable lost man, because of a heart of gratitude, received this blessing from Jesus. Now, if Jesus would do that for that kind of a man, this man with leprosy, the man who's a Samaritan, the one who's outcast from the Jews, and has everything against him. If Jesus would do that for that man because of gratitude, then you think what he would do for those who are already his children. And they show him gratitude. You know what that sounds like? Sounds like an a fortiori argument, doesn't it? I hope you remember what that is. And I'm not going to explain it to you right now. So this is an, an essential thing. Come to God thankfully. So we have credulity, humility, harmony, righteously, and come thankfully. If you want God to hear you, remember those. And we have a couple more to go. We'll get to those next week. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now thankfully. Praise you, Lord, for being here in your house tonight and being able to read from your word. And thank you, Lord, for your people who receive the word of God gladly, who, who will come out on a weekend like this, a holiday weekend, and this is where they want to be. They want to be in church to hear the Word of God. So, Lord, we just thank you for that. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Lord, uh, we trust you. We, we are so thankful for what you've done. Bless us as we sing tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.